Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. So is the man on the other line, my colleague and co-host, Michael Bauman. Hello, sir. Hello. Got some news. Got some housekeeping. Lay it on me. All right. First... Freddie Freeman, we made a, a mm. bet about whether or not he would surpass his professional <laughs> yes. total of 48 and a third innings at third base, all from rookie ball. Well, I am pleased to announce that he <laughs> has blown past that. He has yeah. now more than doubled the number of innings he's played at third base. We also made a bet about his fielding percentage, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. I took the under on the innings, unfortunately. Yeah. I took the over on the previous fielding percentage. What is his fielding percentage uh, this his year? His fielding percentage is 909, which is real bad for a third <laughs> yeah. baseman. Uh, it's Wrong not, on both counts, then, uh, uh, I think. Yeah, and it turns out his range factor is even worse. I mean, you know, this <laughs> might change, but so far he's making 1.84 plays per nine innings, league average 2.61. Mm. Mike Alfranco, who plays in, in concrete shoes, has about half a play's lead over him as far as range at third base goes. So this is, I mean, he hasn't gotten hurt, so. Yeah, no, he can be bad at third base and it can still be an okay move. As long as he hits and Matt Adams hits or Matt Adams is traded for something useful because he is still in the lineup regularly. So, so yeah, I guess it's going about as well as one would have expected. I'm I'm, I'm a huge fan of playing first baseman at third base between old holes with the Angels and Trumbo and Chris Davis. This is, I love this. Yeah. If you want a solution to balls in play being exciting and more base runners, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. this is a good way to do it. Yep. All right. So, yeah. Big news. Big news yeah. happened right as we're podcasting. That's right. Jeff Passan's Coke cans have turned <laughs> up the names Ryan and Sean as yes. Sean Doolittle and Ryan Madsen are being traded to Washington. Mike Rizzo has bought the A's bullpen wholesale <laughs> at the price of uh, Blake Trinan and minor leaguers Jesus Lazardo and Sheldon Noisy. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, Trinan, he's a live arm. You know, maybe yeah. I, I think Oakland has the ability to wait for him to get good again in a way that Washington doesn't. Mm-hmm. Noisy and Lazardo are Washington's sixth and tenth best prospects, according to MLB Pipeline. I like Noisy a lot when he was at, and all of you playing the college baseball drinking game can take a big <laughs> swig right now. When he was at the University of Oklahoma, he really hit well. He was second round pick in 2016. This is a very A's move. Mm-hmm. Madsen and Doolittle have been really, really good, but the A's aren't really in a position where they need to pay. $10 million a year for two middle relievers. So yes, know, they, which is something a lot of people pointed out when the A's signed those relievers for a lot of money, or at well, least now Madsen, they got Sheldon but, Noisy. So yeah, sure. And Trinan was originally supposed to be the Nationals' closer this year, and after some early blowups, was removed from that role. But he's a, a pre-arb guy, and if you look past the ERA, he has actually been pretty effective this year. He has a, a 60% ground ball rate, which is maybe not the best news if you are an Oakland pitcher and you actually have to have the ball put in play with that defense behind you. But if he does not continue to run a a 380 BABIP, he he should be a useful arm. But I think that everyone wondered what the Nationals were going to do. How many back of the bullpen arms could they acquire at this deadline? And they've just gotten two very good ones without having to give up any of their big name prospects. Mm -hmm. So progress. They've added both a righty and a lefty. So very efficient trade. Yeah. A return to the East Coast for Madsen, who was, of course, a longtime relief ace for the Phillies, and Doolittle, who played his high school ball at Shawnee High School in Medford, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. South Jersey uh, showing up big again. Sure, and sure. College ball at the University of Virginia. And between the two of them, they have enough hair for one relief pitcher. So it's <laughs> yeah. win-win. Yeah. Nationals, as we speak, their bullpen, worst in baseball, actually sub-replacement level bullpen. They are one of two bullpens below replacement level. The other is, of course the Tigers, as it seems to be every year. (laughs) But the Nationals position players who have been carping and complaining about their lack of a bullpen all year, for good reason, will be assuaged somewhat by these moves. And these guys are under control for a bit, too. Madsen is signed for next season. Doolittle also signed for next season with team options for the following two years. So this, at least based on what we know now, takes care of some bullpen vacancies Mm -hmm. in the coming years, too takes them through the Bryce Harper era. I was going to say, so. they're, they're very well going to be able to afford those uh, those contracts after Harper leaves them free agency. So. 
we're going to get some angry tweets about that. But yes, yeah, so <laughs> I just realized I Pierre Maguire the hell out of uh, Sean Doolittle there, and I want to I want to apologize to everybody. <laughs> yeah, so we were expecting that move. I think the moves that we've seen so far, everyone expected a Quintana trade. Everyone expected Nationals bullpen trades to be made, but we've seen them and not unpredictable, but still significant and momentous. So if it doesn't really set up the Nationals that much better for the regular season because they were so well set up already, this definitely positions them better for October when back of the bullpen arms like this account for a higher percentage of your team's innings pitch than they do during the regular season because you can work them a little bit harder, you've got more off days, etc. So it was important for them to make a move like this and they killed two bullpen arms with one stone here and so they might have more moves to come. Of course, they've been Joe linked Ross, to that right, Joe Russ. the season with Tommy John surgery. So. Yes, right. And even more bullpen moves are still possible. Of course, they've been right. linked to <laughs> David Robertson seemingly for all of recorded history. So it still wouldn't be a shock to to see them come up with more names. There are only five relievers short now instead of seven, which <laughs> yes. they were a week ago. So you right. said everybody expected these trades. You know what nobody expected? A podcast about Ty Cobb? No. Well, we're going to get to that. Nobody <laughs> expects that. Um, yeah. <laughs> nobody expects Matt Holiday to run the bases the wrong way, which happened in the uh, Red Sox Yankees game that started on Saturday afternoon and is still ongoing as we record on Sunday afternoon. So Matt Holiday ran the bases the wrong way. And yes. So- <laughs> yeah. This was a game that went 16 innings. The Yankees ended up winning four to one. And the most memorable play, perhaps, is this crazy Matt Holiday base running from the 11th inning, where seemingly attempting to break up a double play or stay out of a double play. He had walked to get on first base and then the ball was put in play. It was hit a grounder to first base Moreland at first and Holiday, instead of dutifully running to second and accepting the force out, he came back and slid into first base, which then caused the throw to go into foul territory. There was a review of this, a long review. And when you see a highlight clip on MLB, com that itself is like nine and a half minutes long. <laughs> you know that something strange has happened. It took a while to sort this thing out. Holiday was called out and the game was played under protest by the Red Sox because interference wasn't called, right? So yeah. Ellsbury was still safe at first. And so that was kind of a controversial call. But really, the mystery was just what Holiday was thinking. This is a 37-year-old Major League Baseball player. This is his 14th season. He is grounded into 215 double plays personally and has been on base for many more. And it's the old cliche about you never know what you're going to see in a baseball game. And there's always a first time. And I would imagine this is a first time for Holiday, possibly for anyone. And his explanation of what he was thinking was not very comprehensive or, or satisfactory. He said, I wasn't going to run into a tag. Maybe he thought it was a tag play because Moreland had fielded the ball and stepped on the bag, thereby forcing out Ellsbury. I don't know if he could have thought that. I wonder if he thought that. That seems like the... I mean, my favorite part about this is how little real estate he had covered between first and second by the time (laughs) the ball got to Moreland the first time. Um, You know, I find it hard to believe that he would just give up and turn back to first base. You know, it's the Red Sox protested the game. And I imagine this is not going to get overturned because it didn't affect the outcome at all because Robbie Scott got Mm -hmm. out of the inning pretty quickly after that. I kind of would have wanted to see him called out for interference because this feels like setting up a precedent for somebody to like this happened in hockey a couple of times where Mm -hmm. somebody finds a loop. Sean Avery uh, stood in front of the goal in the power play facing the goalie with his back to the play and waved the stick in his face to try to just the goalie and like the next day the nhl came down and said no that you can't do that anymore and this feels like that kind of play where if he was doing it on purpose or even if he wasn't doing it on purpose somebody will try to do it on purpose (laughs) uh, and there's just going to be absolute chaos so i hope that doesn't happen and i hope that if it does mlb puts a stop to it uh, relatively quickly (laughs) yeah i'm pro chaos in the short term but uh, long-term chaos probably not great yeah (laughs) this this just has the faint whiff of long-term chaos to me and and not Uh in a good way matt holiday is no stranger to base running weirdness because he still has not touched home plate from that 2007 tiebreaker (laughs) gonna get yet more tweets now Um, bring it on 
I'm, I'm lonely. This is the only human interaction I have is angry people tweeting at me. Yeah. And us doing podcasts. Yep. Sorry, we only do it twice a week. So there is actually a, a segue we can make here to our, our topic for the episode. There are multiple connections maybe in that the subject of our interview today, Ty Cobb, who has seemingly never been more relevant and we'll explain why in a second, but he was teammates with the famous Germany Schaefer who quote unquote stole first base and himself forced rule changes in baseball so that you could not do that anymore to draw a throw and and have someone else score while while you're doing that. And so the other connection is that our guest today in a speech he gave mentioned a quote about Ty Cobb, which uh, is from a, a contemporary sports writer who said, Ty Cobb getting a walk is more exciting than Babe Ruth hitting a home run. In this case, I think that is also true of Matt Holliday drawing a walk, although not normally, but that was routinely the case for Cobb. So let's talk about him and talk about why we're talking about him. So it's fairly rare to read something that changes your mind on a certain subject so thoroughly that you feel silly for ever having believed anything else. But that's what happened to me last year when I read a transcript of a speech given by Charles Learson, who wrote the brilliant 2015 biography, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. I hadn't yet read the book, so this speech completely changed what I believed about Cobb. And since then, I've been somewhat obnoxiously sending that speech to anyone I encounter who still has my old misconceptions about Cobb, including earlier this year, our boss, Bill Simmons, who, when he read that speech, had the same reaction to it that I did, quote, oh my God, my whole world has been turned upside down. So I've been waiting for a chance to talk about this on a podcast, and the perfect opportunity came along last week when the name Ty Cobb was trending because Donald Trump hired a very adventurously mustachioed man who is also named Ty Cobb to serve as White House Special Counsel. This Cobb, a lawyer, is reportedly at least a distant relative of the baseball Cobb. And as you can imagine, many of the myths about Cobb were being bandied about in response to this news. So I emailed Mr. Learson and asked him to come on and help us set the record straight. And he is joining us now. Hello, Charles. Hey, Ben. How are you? We're doing great. So... I know that you have probably been talking about this a bunch because of this news. And, and for that reason, at least I'm glad that it happened. So I want to go back to the beginning of your involvement and awareness of Cobb and your plans to write this biography, which were completely different before you started doing the research. So can you describe what it was like when you pitched this book that became something completely different from what you had imagined it to be? Yeah, well, you know, I I, uh, I was casting about for a, a book idea. Um, I had this relationship with Simon and Schuster, the publisher, and so they said, "What do you want to write about?" And then, you know, when you, I thought, you know, I, I hadn't written a baseball book yet, and so I turned to that subject. And then, you know, you always want to strike a balance between people that are popular but not overdone. And in Cobb, I, I found someone who certainly, you know. Was well known and he still had the highest batting average of all time, three sixty six or three sixty seven, depending on which side of the, the bar fight you're on there. But you know, he certainly qualified as a as a A list baseball guy. And they hadn't been a, a biography of him, at least a you know, a substantial one done in twenty years. So mm -hmm. he he sort of fit the bill for me. But I went into it thinking, as you say, that I you know, I, I had all the myths. I grew up with all the stories, as we all did. Are you hearing over and over? Hearing from every angle, from Ken Burns and and uh, the old Al Stump books and whatnot. And I thought, well, I've been in uh, a journalist for all my life for a few decades, and I'll you know I'll just I, I'm a good reporter. I'll just do some good research and good reporting. I'll find fresh examples of his monstrous behavior because, of course, we all know. We all heard the myths about him being a racist, a horrible human being who slides into people with sharp spikes. Right. I'll, I'll get fresh examples and I'll combine those with the other examples, and we'll have a we'll have a biography. But that's not what happened to me. I, I started to realize very early in the research that the myths were kind of feeding off themselves, and that I say, you know, I worked on the book for four years, but in the first. 10 or 15 minutes of, of, of standard research, I began to see things by going back to the old clips from 1905, 1967. 1905 was the year that he, he first came to the major leagues. And I began to see things that 
were inconvenient truths, you know, if, to, in terms of my preconception, you know. Yeah. And um, and so I began to see a like a real human being, not a saint, but a but a real human being. Yeah. So can you give us uh, a few examples, maybe, of the the early anecdotes you came across that made you start to question what you had thought? Yeah. Uh, well, you know how we've all heard that Ty Cobb was like this this horrible guy, angry all the time, just. Just he had, he had no friends. He didn't care about mm-hmm. people. He was the most miserable and hateful human being that ever lived. He, the, the myth now, when I look back at it, kind of reminds me of like you know Daffy Duck or or, or Wiley Coyote or someone, yeah. some cartoon character who's always in the same mood whenever you, you check in on him. And in Cobb's case, it was not all that different. You know, the spittle was flying. He was insanely angry at somebody or something. So uh, one of the first things I encountered was this story from uh, 1911. It was a Odd story. It was Tychov was appearing in a play, a three-act play called *The College Widow*. It was a comedy, and it was the off season. And this is what ballplayers did in those days before they could make the, you know, make very much money. The reserve clause, uh, you know, kept them prisoner to to a team. And and in the off season, they they started to realize that they could capitalize on their fame by. Uh, by appearing in vaudeville or plays. It wasn't an uncommon thing, as weird as it sounds today. So he was in this play, and he was having this being interviewed backstage by the Atlanta Constitution, and it presented this scene of him. He's backstage in a cramped little dressing room in Atlanta. The reporter is there talking to him, and Cobb is trying to accommodate the reporter, and the reporter has really inane questions like, Cobb was playing a football player in the play. So he's saying, how is playing a football player different than being a baseball player? You know, and things like that. And Cobb is being very accommodating. And then in the middle of it, a guy drops in on the thing. An old friend of Cobb's, a catcher from the minor leagues, lights up a big cigar, is smoking this thing in this cramped dressing room. And the stage manager is yelling at Cobb, you know, 30 seconds beyond you. And Cobb is doing costume changes and and so right away, you know, with this crowd, it reminded me of the, the Marx Brothers, A Night at the Opera, you know, that state room scene where everyone's crowded in the room. Uh, and and right away, I began to see, wow, look at this. Like, here's Cobb going out of his way to be nice and accommodating and, and then try to handle these questions. He talks about, he obviously cares about what the audience thinks of him. He wasn't the world's greatest actor, believe it or not. And and so he was a little worried about that. His friend shows up. Notice he has a friend who, who you know, from the minor leagues, and he lights a cigar and, you know, and he's, he's accommodating him. So it's just a very, it was a funny scene, but it was just a, a, a picture of a man being a normal human being. And believe it or not, given the myths about Cobb, just a portrait of a man being a normal human being was a a myth-shattering thing, mm-hmm. and so then I began to I, I began to go from there and wonder, you know, does he not have does he does he have friends? And 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 what I found as a, you know as I spun things out, I found that yeah, he was close to you know a, a lot of people. He had a you know he was a controversial guy all of his life. I mean, to, he most sort of reminds me of uh, in terms of the way he got along with the world, a little bit like Ted Williams, a little bit like Joe DiMaggio. Mm-hmm. Now these were guys that. They had their enemies and they had their people who, who who didn't like them. Sometimes it was jealousy or sometimes it was just chemistry. You know, they didn't like them. But but they also had a lot of friends and a lot of supporters, too. And they were controversial guys, but they were also normal human beings in the sense that, that they had friends and relationships. And also, I, I began to see a whole other uh, picture of Cobb. He's not the opposite of the myths. Because no one is a, a saint, no one in the world. He's sort of a. The interesting thing to me was he's sort of this third option, which is this whole other human being that we hadn't seen yet, who is a fascinating guy. You know, flawed, flawed, not exact, not in the ways that we we think of him as being flawed. You know, the racism and the and believe it or not was not there. Uh, I, I know people. You know, some people just can't believe that, or they they. I think I'm making a joke to say, what are you going to tell me now that Cobb wasn't a racist? You know, what happened to Ty Cobb was that after he died in 1961, one sports writer came along, a guy named Al Stump, and wrote this scandalous piece about how he had spent time with Cobb while writing Cobb's autobiography the year before, and that Cobb was a drunken, crazy man who ran around waving a gun and 
all the women in his family were scared of him. It was a very salacious, scandalous piece for a, a kind of a barbershop magazine called True Magazine. But this was like nine nine years before all four, you know, Jim Bowden's book. No one had no one had talked about baseball players in this way. This was a this really raised eyebrows, this story, believe it or not, a, a pulpy magazine story. And what helped disseminate it was all the sports writers, there were so many newspapers in those days, so many sports columnists and, and writers came to Cobb's defense, but in the process, they wound up quoting the story and disseminating it and saying, this is not the Cobb I know. And that got out there and this weird phenomenon happened. I say it's like a, you know, just like a spark can cause a, a forest fire. This thing grew and people loved this idea of this cranky old guy who was beyond cranky. And they started to embroider on the, on the story. And uh, uh, Cobb in 61 was, he retired from baseball in 1928, and he, he he didn't stay involved with baseball. He was very much out of the limelight. So he was kind of this blank slate on which people could just write stuff and, you know, just make up stuff about. And they told the story of this true magazine story, and as they told and retold it, they embroidered upon it. And we, I used the metaphor before the spark and the forest bar. You could use the rolling snowball, too. It, it, it just grew. And people started making assumptions. Well, here's a guy born in 1886 in the hills of northern Georgia. Right. He, he's got to be a racist, you know. And so, well, do you want me to tell you how he can't be? <laughs> uh, he can't be. One, one thing I found, and I'm, I didn't set out, and I never at any point wanted to be Cobb's lawyer or his defender. I just wanted to find out the truth and let the, the chips fall where they may. And in some cases, they, they don't fall in a very nice place. You know, he did go into the stands one time and beat up a guy who lost several fingers in, a, in an industrial accident. There's no excusing that. And he's, his reputation still suffers for it. And there's other, other things that we could talk about on the negative side. But on the racism point, what I found was that Cobb descended from a long line of abolitionists that his great-grandfather was a preacher who, who uh, preached against slavery and got run out of town for it. His grandfather was the equivalent of a conscientious objector who, who signed up for the Confederate Army but never fought in it because of the, he didn't believe in the slavery issue. The cop's father was a state senator and a, a, a school administrator who had a very short political career as a state senator because he, he came out and he supported his black constituents, such as they were, if they could even vote for him with the people in his district. Uh, and, and he once broke up a lynch mob in town. You know, Cobb is not on the record. People say Cobb is an avowed racist. Well, where did he make this vow and when did he make it? I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to see that. You know, Cobb is in the KKK. There's no, there's no evidence of that. There's no, there's no evidence of, of racist behavior. And, and the only, the first time we see Cobb addressing the subject it's in 1953 when the Sporting News asked him about the integration of the Texas League, which was taking place like five or six years after Jackie Robinson came to the major leagues. And Todd said, the Negro should be accepted wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. The Negro has the right to play professional sports, and who's to say he has not? And, uh, you know, I get chills every time I say that quote because – that was an era when a lot of guys, a lot of ball players, were saying uh, no comment or it's too soon when things like that. Cobb was saying accepted wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. And you know, by that point, Cobb had spent a lot of time hanging around Negro League ball players, attended games, was asked to throw out the first ball at Negro League games. You can find baseballs with his autograph is on them with a lot of Negro League stars and. That's the history of Ty Cobb. I'm not saying he was Martin Luther King and he, he led the civil rights, you know, uh, movement. Of, he, he, but as a citizen, as a private citizen, that was his opinion, and that's the, the record with Ty Cobb. And I was shocked myself to find that. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with the rest of the story on Cobb. 
Do you have a pair of sunglasses with scratched lenses? You either threw them into a junk drawer or you're still wearing them, squinting through the scratches. Thanks to Revent Optics, you no longer have to live with those scratches or keep buying pair after pair of new sunglasses. Instead, you can save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with high-quality polarized, non-polarized, and prescription replacement lenses available for any brand on the market. Starting at just $24 a pair, Revent Optics lenses are a fraction of the price of brand-name sunglasses, and because they test their lenses to ensure razor-sharp clarity, they're a much better option than cheap gas station shades. Revent lenses are easy to install, guaranteed to fit, and backed by a one-year warranty. And if you can't find your sunglasses listed on their website, Revent Optics can cut custom lenses for you at their lab in Portland, Oregon. So join over 500,000 customers and try them risk-free with their 60-day money-back guarantee. Plus, enjoy free shipping and returns in the U.S. And get 20% off your first order when you use the coupon code MLB. Go to reventoptics.com slash MLB. That's R-E-V-A-N-T optics.com slash MLB. Reventoptics.com. Replace your lenses, save your sunglasses. And I also want to tell you about Hotel Tonight. If you're like me and you're not so great at planning ahead when it comes to travel, I've got good news for you. There's this awesome app called Hotel Tonight that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. Sounds counterintuitive, but unlike flights, hotel rates usually get cheaper at the last minute. And Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These aren't last resort places. They're actually cool, top-rated hotels you want to stay in. And with so many awesome partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or finally going on that trip you've been wanting to take for a while. If you're traveling for a sporting event, for a wedding, just sitting on a beach somewhere, all opportunities to use Hotel Tonight. Because even though the app's name is Hotel Tonight, you can book up to a week in advance. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. Now let's get back to baseball. So there are like 15 things that you mentioned that I want to come back to, but to like when I was, I'm the last person I think that Ben shocked by sending the transcript of your speech to (laughs) and reading that, like you don't introduce Al Stump until about halfway through. And the whole time I'm thinking if all this isn't true, because I, my baseball history knowledge is from books and uh, documentaries from the eighties and nineties that I consumed when I was a kid. And all of them repeat the, the Al Stump version of what kind of person Cobb was. So I was thinking like, if this was so true and so easily refuted, then what forces were at play to try to perpetuate this myth, particularly in the sixties when people who knew Cobb well were still alive and writing and, and talking to reporters. So, you know, it's one thing for, you know, you paint this, this image of, of stump, but that's one person. So, you know, it's just so fascinating to me how everything sort of spiraled, uh, how that, myth became perpetuated. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I, I have groped for a, another example from history or pop culture of this happening. And I've had a hard time finding it. Someone told me that Edgar Allan Poe got a bad rap from a, his a biographer in the mid-19th century shortly after he died. And, and so we, we henceforth, you know, we thought of Poe as a, a, like a, a crazy drug addict, you know, just like the characters in his stories or something. But, but the, you know, that doesn't resonate as well. This is a unique situation. And what Stump did, Stump's involvement is a little complicated. Just before Cobb died, he wrote one of those kind of as told to autobiographies with Cobb. He filled it with a lot of nonsense, making up stuff, not derogatory to Cobb, but just kind of a lot of crazy B-movie scenes. He wouldn't show it to Cobb. Cobb was getting very sick at this point in the, in the 59, 60, 61 in there, and he wouldn't show it to Cobb. Cobb threatened to, to sue to, when he finally saw some of it to stop it. The publisher kind of stalled knowing Cobb was very sick. They figured when Cobb died, then they could do what they wanted, and that was true because you can't slander dead man. Not that this was exactly slanderous, but it was it was just wrong. So Cobb died. The book came out and it didn't do well. A few months later, Stump wrote the article I talked about, and then started the snowball rolling. And people, like I say, started uh, repeating this, and it became the kind of thing that people loved. They added murders and they added racism. Stump originally didn't have any racism as part of his version of the myth that got that got added in as, as it went along and it's just a, an example of um you know it happens in the schoolyard when people pick on someone especially if the person's not around to defend themselves and they start telling a story and then someone repeats it's like a game of telephone a little bit you know where you you add and, and, it, and it goes on and then a guy named charles alexander in the 80s who was a college professor wrote a legitimate 
seeming biography of Cobb in which he, he repeated a lot of these things again, and in fact added layers of examples of Cobb having fights with African-American men who, who I found out in my research turned out to be not black. And according to the census reports and the other things, I confronted Alexander, who's still around, and I said, How did, where did this come from? He said, well, I went with the best available information I had at the time, but, but I still don't know where he got it from. And, and that really uh, helped fuel the myth, too, that God had fights with this guy, this guy, and this guy, and they were all black. So you know, that was part of the weird phenomenon. But it's a, it, even today, people are rabid. They want to believe this. And when I, I have to say, well, it sounds self-serving, the people who've read this book tend not to keep questioning it because I have sources and facts that I don't make empty assertions and I have 14 pages of footnotes and the book is sourced throughout. But people who first hear about it on social media or something, they they, they don't want to let go. They're very, they're like a mad dog. They hang on to this because uh, I love this idea. It's a great story and it's, you know, one thing about the story is that it allows you to feel superior. You know, you could say, well, this guy's a crazy, rabid racist, and I'm not like that. You know, I, I look askance at people like that. So when you tell the story, it has that, that benefit, too, that I'm not like that. So I, I, that's part of the reason why it was so popular. But it comes down to that uh, line from the legend of uh, Liberty Balance, you know, the man who shot Liberty Balance, you know, when, when the legend beats the fact Prince the Legend. People have wanted to go with that because it's a it's a better story than the story of a, a complicated, a variegated man who, who who wasn't at all like like that very simple cartoonish myth, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and, and it, even, even with the spiking and all that, that's another thing. You know, some of these myths are rooted in his playing days. He was a very fierce competitor. He was very bad at suffering fools, and he thought. Too many people were fools who probably weren't. So he's an extremely cranky guy. But in his day as a player, he had some enemies. People always cite to me, oh, well, in the, in the book, uh, The Glory of Their Times, you know, a couple of guys on his team knocked him and didn't like him. Well, as I say, talk to teammates of DiMaggio or talk to teammates of... Ted Williams or talk to teammates of any superstar today, you know, there's probably resentment or like I say, just bad chemistry between people. So he had a much more, he's a fascinating guy, you know, and he was very smart and he's very well read and he had a very high standard of play. You have to put yourself in the context of when he came up in 1905, baseball then was those guys were, to generalize, they were a bunch of carnies. I mean, compared to what we have today, they were guys who were, they drank a lot. They, they, they were often played drunk. They were sort of near the wells. It was, it was a, it was a, not a respectable profession, ball player in, in 1905. You were getting, making less money than the, the 25 year old guy in the stands watching you if you're a 25 year old ball player. So the whole thing was reversed and, and they were just, traveling around and wasting time and, you know, messing around. And, and that was their life. Cobb came along and he, he made a profession of this. And he said, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. You know, and he developed this, he developed this way of being what he called, I want to be a mental hazard for the opposition. He had a philosophy. And now we'd say, we understand that. Like Lawrence Taylor was a mental hazard to the opposition in football. You know, like somebody who, or Willie Mays, when you get on base, jumping around and, or, you know, or D Gordon now, you know, you're, you're a distraction. You get on base, we admire that. We think that's, we think that's great. But in 1905, six, seven, when Cobb first came up and started to do this, People were still rooted in 19th century ideas of sportsmanship, and that was considered unsportsmanlike to, 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 to distract the other team and to try to make the other guy look foolish and to try to draw a throw that would go in the outfield and then you'd, you'd steal bases. A lot of people didn't like Cobb, and of course, apart from 19th century attitudes, and a lot of people didn't like Cobb because he was just constantly shaking them up, the opposition, and, and making them look foolish. So that didn't help his popularity either. So there's a lot of reasons why he wasn't, he had this reputation as a, uh, as a hard guy to get along with, hard guy to love in some quarters, although he did have a lot of friends too in his day. And, and when Stump came along with his story, that seemed to sort of fit into, fit into that idea. And was, and people's, 
I think they experienced it as, oh, now we're seeing the really dark, ugly, monstrous side of this guy who we just thought was an extremely intense ball player. You know, in his day, he was controversial the way maybe Pete Rose was controversial, you know, for playing too hard, sliding into Ray Fawcett, or, you know, people thought that was stupid or being a jerk or being too, a little too aggressive at times, you know, and, and, and or, no, or, or very aggressive at times. But at the same time, none of his contemporaries, I could find no examples of them complaining about being spiked by him, except maybe just on the spur of the moment when there were little fights and then the you know, people later corrected the record and said uh, he actually he didn't spike me. The, 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 the consensus of the players was that the, some of the sports writers and fans may, may talk about spiking. But those are, the, those are the civilians. We understand, we understand what he's doing, and he's, he's not, he's, that's not what's going on here. You know, mm-hmm. Cobb wrote in uh, 1910, I think, he wrote a letter to Ben Johnson, the president of the American League. He was tired of these accusations of being a spiker. And he wrote, he wrote a letter to him, and then he released it to the newspapers asking that Ben Johnson put out a rule that players had to dull their spikes with a file and show them to the umpire before before each game because Cobb was tired of hearing that thing that he was a dirty player. He he so much didn't like that because he considered himself a kind of a scientist of the game and um, and he had such pride in his play and that that set him apart in the, in those rough and tumble early years of the major league. Yeah, and you also mentioned that famous photo from 1912 that seems to show Cobb mid-slide with his spikes up, and you quote Paul Critchell, the player, the catcher in that photo, who later became a famous Yankee scout, and he kind of exonerated Cobb for any wrongdoing in that play and said he was out of position and he was aiming his foot at the ball, not at not at Critchell himself. And so every time it seems like it's almost like the Hitchcock wrong man kind of thing that you know, there's just all this evidence that that frames him very well when you kind of come into it with this preconception of what kind of person he was from the, the stump fabrications. So I wanted to ask you, because as Michael alluded to, you know, there's this whole literature, this pantheon of baseball coverage that has cemented the old conception of Cobb or the, the medium term conception of Cobb. And it's in Ken Burns's baseball and it's in Field of Dreams and it's everywhere you look. And so you've now been talking about Cobb as, as you have found him to be for two years now. And you've changed our minds and hopefully you're changing some listeners' minds right now, do you feel as though you're making progress or does it still feel like an insuperable thing that you're fighting 50 years of false history? Well, that's a great question because I, I, I feel like I'm, I, I, I do sometimes feel like I'm making progress, but then uh, when the book breaks through, like at moments like this, when people will talk about it and you'll talk about it and people discover the book, when they just hear about it and they haven't read it, I get the social media is a great place to see this in action. You know, the book has a Facebook page, Psychop, a Terrible Beauty, and, and you look there and people that are just discovering it. I want to strangle them because they, I just, it's so tiresome that but they, they, they coming at it just for the first time and they, and they're saying, Oh, he, sh- he sharpened his spikes and he was, he was this horrible, he was an avowed racist and all these things that have been disproven by the record. And then the other thing that goes with that is these, a lot of people just seem to have a toggle switch because, Oh, if I'm saying he wasn't that, I'm saying he was some saint. Sure. I believe he was a saint, you know, well, as I said before, you know, no one's a saint. And the, the answer is he was a human being and, 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 and this is the kind of human being he was. And, and, and that's in the book. So sometimes I get encouraged and, uh, you know, sometimes I get discouraged. And one thing that has surprised me about the reaction to the book I mean, I myself, let me just say, I voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. But this book is, is, has been embraced more readily by the right wing, which su- surprised me, something I never thought about, you know, because they like this idea. It's rather confusing. I'm not, I'm not sure I, I completely understand it, but they like the idea that some cop is taken off the hook for being a racist. And the left wing people with whom I personally am allied resist it more even because they seem to read it. What I'm saying is that I'm saying that racism wasn't such a big thing in baseball, 
you know, by, by writing about what I'm writing about. And I'm not saying that at all. You know, I'm, 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 you know, racism was, don't know whether to laugh or cry when you think about the idea that a, you know, a man was not allowed to play major league baseball until 1947. I mean, it's a sick joke. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame of America. It's, it's a horrible thing. And even racism, I'm sure continues today. I'm not, I don't mean to diminish that slightly. I'm just saying one individual and his myth is wrong. I'm not saying that made anyone's life better in terms of you know, racism in America, but I am saying that this one man that we thought was one way is, is, is not that way. And I, I guess in the process, I'm also saying that just because someone is from Georgia and born in 1886, you can't necessarily make assumptions about them. Cobb or whatever you want to say about him, he was, a, he was actually progressive for the day in terms of the way way he thought about race. So it's it's interesting the way it's been perceived on the right and the left, this book. And it's caused a lot of fights on social media. And I I suppose that's that's good because that'll lead to, you know, the heat will lead to light. But uh, I can only hope that the the guy gets his just due because his legacy has been just twisted completely out of shape in a way that no one else has been. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly how I felt as a, a lefty confronted with the idea of Ty Cobb, this guy who everybody thought was this horrifying racist, you know, saying that that's not true. Like where I thought it was going was it generated a very similar emotional response in me as the arguments about whether or not to take down Confederate monuments across the South that were, you know, erected, you know, with the the Lost Cause movement and the idea of trying to whitewash the, or so to speak, the the white supremacy of of people like Robert E. Lee and rehabilitate them. And you know, this turns out not to be that. This turns about out to be an argument that you know the facts that generated this myth were actually wrong. But even confronted with those facts, it, it's still sort of difficult to accept because it feels like. You know, I'm letting off this guy that I've known or thought I knew my entire life to to be this horrible racist off the hook. And it feels like it feels very similar to, you know, that that sort of Confederate history thing that I just alluded to. So, you know, what did you have a similar like emotional difficulty grappling with that? Or was this just so wrapped up in the shock of finding out that that these myths were were fabricated to I'm just sort of very curious how how you dealt with that. Well, yeah, I, I was relieved to find that someone, you know, born in Georgia in the hills of Georgia in 1886 was not not as we might expect him to be, you know, now now blatant racist. I mean, Cobb's father worked for uh, was the editor of a newspaper. The owner of the paper claimed to be, you know, he was he, he was an abolitionist who had been an abolitionist, too. And he claimed to be the only guy in Georgia who voted for Abraham Lincoln. So so, the, you know, these were the people that Cobb was surrounded with. It doesn't mean that Cobb himself was not that. But but we can see from the lack of actions and, and then the statements later what what Cobb was. And we have to we have to take that for what it was. But while I was writing it, no, I never anticipated this idea of, uh, oh, I'm doing something that the right wing is going to like. And I'm not even sure why the right wing likes it exactly, because I'm letting Cobb, I'm saying he, he wasn't racist, which is sort of suggests that, you know, you have to admit that there is a lot of racism and, but, but he, he wasn't one of them. You know, I'm not, diminishing that it's, it's a rather as i say i think it's a kind of confused idea you know someone once said to me oh well we'll set you up we should set you up with a, speak to the naacp in detroit about this i said well why are they going to be happy about it you know you know they'll be so thrilled to hear this and i said well that's kind of confused thinking why, why would necessarily black unless they're you know baseball into baseball history and and and, and you know find this one case history interesting as to how reputations can be changed and, and who this guy actually is. But that's not what it's about. It's about one man finding out what you can about him and letting the chips fall where they may. You know, you know, even the incident of cops going into the stands, the more you pull back and look at it, the more you see variegated circumstances and shades of things. I mean, like the guy who Cobb would have beat up was, was harassing Cobb for a year in the stands and Cobb had been talking to him and saying, look, give me a break. You know, I'm just down here trying to make a living. Just watch the game. And, and on the day that Cobb went into the stands, he, the guy was cursing him out and, and making 
he was from the South too. He was grew up not far from where Cobb was. So there was a Southern thing. He was insulting Cobb and saying Cobb's mother slept with black guys. And, and uh, Cobb went into the Yankee dugout and they were in New York. And he said, can you get that guy? Can you send a security guy up or something? And that never happened. And then Cobb just lost it and went up there. Cobb was suspended for doing that. And when he was suspended, you know, uh, heckling and harassment was an issue right then in 1912 when that happened. And when Cobb was suspended, the whole team went out on strike in support of Cobb. So it was the first baseball strike. So here we see you pull back and you get you get a whole different sense of history. You know, the whole myth that everyone hated Cobb. Well, these guys went out on strike and cost them money in, in support of Cobb. And the guy himself, the heckler, wasn't so really white and, you know, innocent and even though he didn't have all his fingers. So the, the more you look, the more the more you see it's been a lesson in that. That's that's what I was caught up with when I did it. I wasn't thinking of politics, but it is funny. I, I When I speak, I've spoken at colleges in the South. Boy, they love this story. And people in the North are a little bit more hesitant. You know, the Ken Burns represents sort of the, you know, Eastern liberal take on this. And I usually admire Ken Burns, but in this case, he just, took the whole, you know, it's very convenient. But, you know, Dan Okrent, who was, who was a uh, talking head in his documentary, has said uh, publicly that he would never say the same thing about Cobb now that he's, he's read my book. And he's the guy that said that Cobb was an embarrassment to baseball. And, but, but that documentary is out there and somewhere on a screen right now, Dan Okrent is saying Ty Cobb was an embarrassment to baseball because of this. And, and so that, 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 that's kind of frustrating to me that that's never going to change. Ken Burns is never going to do something that undercuts the sort of the, you know, the spine of his documentary was all about like Cobb being the anti Jackie Robinson, which as history just, it just isn't the truth. And one other thing you said way earlier in this interview that sort of resonated with me was you brought up the comparison to Ted Williams. And that was something I felt, you know, reading the the speech was Cobb starts coming off a lot like Ted Williams did in summer of 49 as sort of like someone who's uneasy with his fame. And there's, you know, this is an archetype that that comes up again and again in baseball. And it always seems to be really good hitting outfielders. You were just for some reason uncomfortable with like they they have close friends and they're sort of a different person in private, but sort of paranoid in public. And so what was coming to, to that realization like? Well, it, it, yeah, you're right about that. It was, it was interesting. You know, I was, I was groping for something, uh, a way to compare, you know, of course, Ted Williams spit at fans. So that's even a direct parallel to like Cobb going into the, the stands, you know, and that was generations later. The, the thing I keep coming back to with Cobb and everyone who played in 1905 and six and seven, when the major leagues were, you know, two, three, four, five years old, was some basic things were getting worked out in baseball and in society that now we take completely for granted. For example, you know, the, the idea of that one guy on the team would be a star. They wouldn't all just be a bunch of, you know, they were all equal. Somebody would be a star and they'd start to get more attention from the press and, and, and then they would start to get endorsement deals and they'd start to get more of these off-season appearance deals that I mentioned before. And that was, that hadn't, really occurred to people, you know, when, when baseball went big time in, in, in the very early 1900s. But now that was working out, and some guys were resenting that, you know. Other things that were, were, were being worked out was the basic etiquette in the ballpark, you know, that you didn't jump over the fence and chase the umpire. And in those days, there was one umpire on the field most of the time until you know, the 1910s, maybe. And, you know, you didn't chase the umpire around the, off the field, you know, the, before Cobb came up to Detroit, the fans jumped over the fence, chased the umpire out into the street where he he, he called a forfeit for the you know the team that Detroit was playing. That wasn't all that unusual in those days. You know, people were working out the very basics of how to behave at a ballpark, and the teams were working out the basic group dynamics of what it meant to have these guys come together and and be ball players. So Cobb had to adjust to that. And he had adjusted to being in the, one of the first superstars. You know, Honus Wagner was a star already. Uh, Nat Bourgeois was a star. But those guys were very rough around the edges and not very sophisticated. And they, things sort of happened to them, the other, the other stuff. Cobb was figuring out what this meant to uh, be the, the most interviewed guy and the guy that people started to come to for endorsements and appearances. And, and a, a lot of the time, you know, it, 
it was hard to deal with and you didn't want to deal with it. And, and being very cranky, to put it mildly at times, you know, that, that, that complicated things too. So yeah, he was a, a pioneer in these ways of uh, dealing with the public, dealing with adulation, very basic things that we that we take for granted now. And this is my last one. One thing that, that sort of struck me as interesting is we think of pre-1900 baseball as like the distant past and everything else is sort of modern. And, you know, Cobb, there's he existed in, as you said, a, you know, not a totally modern media environment, but there were, you know, Baseball was completely professionalized and covered like it. There's video of him playing. There's extensive written and statistical reports of what he did and how. And but at the same time, there's a player so who is so much a product of the modern environment, but he's completely outside living memory. And so, did that hit you? I guess while you were researching this, because obviously there's a way that that you research a project like this. But did that present any challenges that you're writing about somebody about which so much is known, but you know there's pretty much nobody left alive who can remember him play? Yeah, that's very. That's a key point. It's a key point in why the why this myth has been able to get propagated and prosper and still be alive and well in a lot of quarters. You know, Cobb retired in 1928. There was very little film footage of him. There was some, but there was very little. There weren't even radio reports in those days. But there was a lot of newspaper coverage more than there is today. There's more in newspapers, so there was a lot of that. But he was. His name existed, but by the time he got to the 50s, the game had changed and, uh, you know, the sluggers came along. The, we were well past, you know, the Babe Ruth era of the live ball. We were deeply into that. And Cobb never got back in, involved in baseball. He, he stayed off the stage. I say in the book, I tell he was on the show, I've Got a Secret in, in the late 50s. And in those days, the men would they'd have to put a blindfold on him and they just ask questions and the women could just look at him. No one guessed who he was. The secret was that he had the highest batting average in the in major league history, and of course he still does. But no one guessed who he was in the in the late fifties. That really bothered him. Of course, a lot of people knew his name. He was fading from public consciousness, and when and that's why when he died, and somebody came along and started to give an alternate narrative that he was a blank slate, a blank Wikipedia page on which Al Stump could write this thing and people could believe it because no one, he was fading from memory. He'd been retired then, you know, for 30 odd years. And, uh, and, and there was no film of him and, and he played a very different game. So that was, that gave people permission. It's like, you know, if you went back to the early Roman emperors or even before that, you know, Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, you could say whatever you want about them. You know, you know, you have carte blanche, but the, don't try to do that about, you know, someone who's in the news right now because you, know, you can't do it. So, so that was a key point that, that Cobb was absent from the scene and that when, and when the, and when the myth started up, he was, he was in fact dead. So, uh, you know, when he died, he was celebrated. The New York Times had a an editorial, not on the sports page, on the editorial page, saying what a great player he'd been, and you know, and celebrating him. It was the word racist really wasn't in the dictionary in those days. It was, it was just before the civil rights movement, and that started to come on. And Cobb's reputation changed. It be, he became the monster only after his death. He wasn't treated as a monster before his death, or certainly while he was a player, you know, aggressive player, not liked by by everyone, all of his contemporaries, but taken for granted that he had a lot of friends. He had a lot of friends that come down, sports writers and whatnot to his house in Augusta. They stayed there. It's just plain silly to say he, did, he didn't have, he didn't have friends. In fact, Homeless Wagner, who's often depicted as you know, a mortal enemy of his and all this just nonsense. They went on hunting trips together. This, the facts are there, the, the newspaper stories, the pictures of them are there. So his being gone was a great incentive to that. Also that he was a ball player. You could never say it about Abraham Lincoln. It said to Abraham Lincoln, oh, he was, he's a racist and he beat up a black gardener on the, on the White House lawn. You know, people would say, oh yeah, where's, where's your proof? You know, but with Cobb, they said, oh yeah, wow, great. Wow. That's great. Tell me more. You know, so he was a blank page when he died. 
Yeah. And so lastly, I I think this story is so topical in ways that you probably couldn't have anticipated even a couple of years ago when your book came out, not only because there is literally a man named Ty Cobb in the news, but also because there has been so much discourse about falsehood and truth telling in media. And the Cobb story is essentially fake news long before anyone was using that term for it. And this is probably a a nonpartisan question because this is an accusation that gets hurled from both sides to the other. But what lesson, if any, would you draw from this? Because you mentioned that, if anything, the sports writers who came to Cobb's defense originally and tried to correct the record may inadvertently have perpetuated it. So does that suggest that when something false is said, the best thing is not to draw attention to it, hope that it goes away on its own? Or is the Cobb situation so unique and and so unusual that that is not the case and that usually there is some value to speaking up as you have with this book and saying, hey, there's more to this story and the, the cartoon version of history is not the most accurate one, which is maybe also a lesson that is helpful to remember whenever it seems like the story is so simple and like a caricature almost there there might be additional depth to it that is being missed yeah well you know i would not advise uh, not speaking up <laughs> that doesn't seem like a, a good like a human response and i think you know uh i don't know if this could happen again you know in the age of social media and the age of of uh, when there's so much inspected, you know, so everything is inspected and everything is is, is looked at so closely. Uh, I I don't know if this can happen again. I, I I hope it couldn't. You know, one thing we haven't brought up, and this and I'm burying the lead. I don't know if you realize that in 20 odd years ago, I wrote a book with Donald Trump. I was one of his ghostwriters, <laughs> and oh, wow. so. I, I span the uh, Trump uh, Ty Cobb story in ways that uh, are, <laughs> you know, too surreal to even think about. So I spent a year in Donald Trump's office, you know, pretty much two or three times a week just talking to him. And uh, and people have asked me, his fans think there's a comparison between him and Cobb. Uh, believe me, it's, for what I know of Cobb, there isn't. It's just on the matter of books alone. Cobb was a voracious reader and a constant reader. Trump has has written more books than he's read, so there, there's no no comparison there. But yeah, it's I, I think my book, any book. I mean, all I did was apply the usual standards of research to this to a baseball player, which is not often done. I mean, perhaps today it's 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 done better than it used to be. But back in the day, back in the '60s, when Al Stump was writing, these these guys were like. These hack writers, these, and they were like hard drinking guys that were banging out, a, you know, on their manual typewriter in the off season. They were banging for for eight hundred bucks. They were banging out a book about somebody or other, and they didn't bother to do research. They just sat at their kitchen table and and you know worked the keyboard and and said stuff. And and so that those were the standards. But Stump had a had the the good luck, and also he was probably smart enough. He realized what he was onto, and he he spun this out. You know, he wrote that article in '61. He didn't write his really killer diller book until the '90s, which when Ron Shelton was making that horrible Cobb movie, said you know Ron bought Ron Shelton bought the screen rights to the magazine article, and then said you know why don't you write a book? It'll help the movie, and the movie will help the book. It'll be it was a kind of a modern idea. Stump banged out that. Uh, that second book of his, which is called simply Cobb, which became a huge bestseller and speaks to the, you know, the attractiveness of this monster story. And, um, you know, that really propelled the, uh, the book into the 21st century and beyond coming out as it did at the end of the 20th century. And so that was the story with, with Stump. I think I've shown that by just applying normal, honest research methods, you can, inflict pain on a lie. I'm not sure I can kill it, but I've, I think I've made the lies life miserable, if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, 
<laughs> I, I hope I am trying to share your optimism. I think certainly there are ways in which the ease with which news, true or false, can be disseminated today make it easier than ever to perpetuate the sort of stump fabrications. But hopefully also the opposite is true and that people listening to this are having their minds changed en masse also. So whether you have been convinced and persuaded and you want to check out the book just to look for additional evidence and support and anecdotes and flesh out the picture of Cobb that you've developed over the course of listening to this episode, or you completely disagree and you think Charles is wrong about everything and you want to read his book and point out all the flaws that you imagine might be there. Either way, get the book. It's called Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. You can also find Charles on Twitter at Charles Learson. That's L-E-E-R-H-S-E-N. And you can find out more about the book and about Charles and about his previous books at charleslearson.com. So thank you very much. I know you probably spent a large portion of your life talking or writing about Ty Cobb over the last few years, but hopefully it is making a difference. It certainly did with us. And it was a real pleasure to talk to you. So thank you very much. Well, likewise. Thanks very much, guys. All right, so that will do it for today. We will be back on Thursday for your next human interaction of the week. Yep. Thanks for listening to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network. Talk to you soon. Bye. scratches be the end of your sunglasses. Save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with Revent Optics. Revent Optics offers high-quality replacement lenses for any brand, starting at just $24. With over 500,000 customers worldwide and an average rating of 99.7%, Revent Optics guarantees incredible clarity and a perfect fit or your money back. Get 20% off your first order with code MLB at reventoptics.com slash MLB. That's R-E-V-A-N-T-O-P-T-I-C-S dot com slash MLB. 